This is Zealous, an in-depth look behind the scenes of legal matters straight from the attorneys of Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Zealous. I'm your host, Brianna Meyer. I'm an associate here at Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown, and throughout this series, I'll be interviewing my colleagues about everything that goes into being a legal practitioner. From investigations to trials to Supreme Court decisions and everything in between, this is the place to immerse yourself in the legal world. This week, I'm sitting down with Jason Luzak, a partner here at the firm. Jason represents clients in a variety of practice areas, including criminal and white-collar defense, administrative and licensing matters, and civil litigation in the state and federal courts. Beyond his work at the firm, Jason is also an adjunct associate professor of law at Marquette University Law School, where he teaches both trial advocacy and the trial skills competition course. He also coaches the Marquette National Moot Court Competition team and makes regular appearances on court TV. Jason is one of my mentors and has had a very large influence on my practice, and I could not be more excited to sit down with him for this first episode. Today, we're talking COVID-19 and its effects on the criminal justice system. At the time of recording, we are almost one year into the pandemic, and over 500,000 people have passed away from the disease. COVID-19 has shaken our world and altered reality, including how the criminal justice system operates. Okay, I want to break this maybe into two different pieces because I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that COVID has had a very different impact on practitioners and on defendants themselves. When, let's start from the very, very beginning. How has this affected your day-to-day meeting with clients, preparing for court, all of that? Yeah, so it's really difficult to kind of think back on the progression of everything because um, at the beginning of this, like a year ago, we were all kind of processing what it meant for just daily life. Um, and as we've gone along, you know, we have evolved in the way that, you know, so at first we shut down completely uh, and we all were working from home. But now we've, you know, we've basically figured out a way to evolve and change the way that we do things. So we meet with clients over Zoom if we can. We have to be on top of basically making sure that we know whether a hearing is now going to be in person or uh, over Zoom because I think courts are going to start adopting uh, a lot of these court appearances that we've actually found can be more efficient doing them over Zoom. So that's been something that's really been helpful uh, for us. But it's, it's obviously been a total shift. and I think the world is never going to be the same even after we get past this pandemic. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on the shift and the fact that, in my opinion, courts are definitely going to keep these Zoom hearings going in the future. What's been one drawback that you found with the Zoom hearings? So the biggest drawback that I see is a normalization of doing things over a computer screen. And particularly with the clients that we represent, criminal defendants, uh, one of the biggest goals that we have is to humanize that person. So to make sure that the judge understands that 
this is somebody who maybe they made a mistake or did something that was wrong, but that doesn't mean that they're a bad person. And that type of work is really hard to do over a computer screen. So one of the biggest drawbacks is that it's also one of the benefits is that it's normalizing efficiencies. So it's helping, I think, the system become more efficient. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we're cognizant of the fact that you can lose some of that human touch by doing things over Zoom or agreeing to do things over Zoom. So one of the things that I think that we have found has been difficult is deciding and and advising clients on the drawbacks of appearing over Zoom for, let's say, something that's a real substantive hearing, like a sentencing, where we want to make sure that the judge sees this person. If we do it in person, you know, you're going to have a mask on. So that dehumanizes you to a certain degree. So there's really a difficulty, I think, in advising people right now of really what is the impact on the decision maker, you know, um, and trying to figure that out. And I think we all are trying to figure that out. And it's probably something that will be studied uh, as we go along in this pandemic and the new world that we live in. One of the things that has definitely changed is the fact that now a lot of the hearings are on YouTube. I've found that it's been a sword that cuts both ways. Number one, it's nice for the public to be able to easily see these hearings that in COVID, they're just barred from seeing in person. But number two, it can also act as sort of a public hanging. What do you think about the YouTube alternative? Yeah, I think that one of the things, one of the main drawbacks of YouTube is that there's really no control over who is recording things and who is disseminating uh, what's being done in court. Because uh, prior to the pandemic, there was no usage of YouTube. So if you wanted to see what occurred in court, um, you either saw it through um, the fact that if there it was a high profile case, let's say there was some news coverage, but that would be controlled by the court. So the media outlet would have to ask for permission, which would usually be granted, but that would uh, be very limited. So now you have a situation where there is a wide scale usage of everyday court hearings that are basically at people's fingertips. And it takes away some of the ability for it to be done in private. Mm -hmm. So only people who were really heavily invested in a case would show up. And now you have a, a much lower barrier of seeing what occurs in court, um, which, you know, most times people, it's their most embarrassing, worst mm -hmm. time in their life. And now, you know, anyone can see it. So anyone who has just a passing interest in that person can seek out what's happening in court. Yeah. And that can be very embarrassing. So yeah, that's a definite drawback. But at the same time, you know, with, uh, teaching uh, trial advocacy at Marquette, mm -hmm. you know, it's very helpful to have people actually be able to observe what occurs in court. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a, a double-edged sword and maybe it requires, you know, looking at other changes that can be done, which uh, include, you know, the more wide-scale usage of expungement laws or things like that, so that um, we are kind of putting that into the calculus of harm that occurs to someone. And I, I think that you 
really hit the nail on the head when you said it can be a great teaching tool because even for less experienced attorneys like myself, being able to log on and to watch someone like you who's been doing this for over a decade and who's a partner at our firm, uh, being able to just log on and see you in action more, it's a great way for me to continue to hone my skills in a way that was not available before. Yeah, <laughs> well, thanks for that. Um, yeah, no, it, 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 it is helpful, uh, but I do miss the you know pre-pandemic times where mm -hmm. we would be in court most days it's but it's a shift that's honestly we're not going to come back from i don't think i mean i i don't think that we're going to be practicing law the way that we did uh a, a year ago yeah i agree and in a in a weird way i think that parts of it are very good as you had pointed out you know there are hearings that we can do online now that we didn't need to drive two hours to be at a, a hearing to pick a new date before. Um, so that has been really nice. As far as when we are in court, obviously the courtrooms have changed dramatically. There's plexiglass everywhere. Have you seen an effect on, on you or on your clients with these change protocols? Yeah, definitely. I think that the courtrooms, and this is something that uh, when we were talking about how are we going to approach trials now that um, everyone is wearing masks, everything from selecting a jury where you can't see someone's facial expressions. And really, if you look at studies that were done on you know facial expressions and things like that, there's a lot of communication that occurs uh, with our face that if you're covering up, you know, uh, half of your face, it makes it much more difficult. Um, and so I think that the main impact that it has is that we don't really know exactly how it changes people's decision-making process. Um, it seems like there's a real desire to have witnesses at least uncover their faces, um, which is something that I think the court is going to ultimately have to address, probably the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, because there's so much that occurs that's, I don't want to say magical, but it's something that is that you can't really put your finger on and yeah. is something that occurs when someone's assessing credibility of a witness that is really, I think, more difficult uh, for someone to get a fair trial if witnesses are able to cover their faces. Now, as we go along the lines of, well, who else is covering their faces, I think it affects the attorneys. I think it affects mm -hmm. uh, the, the presentation that's done. Um, you know, everything is made more difficult uh, from a presentation perspective with a mask on. Yeah. You know, everything from uh, being able to, you know, have to have a certain level of your voice because you have to talk through a mask mm -hmm. to breathing even yeah. is made more difficult. Yeah. So I think it absolutely affects things, but I think that it affects things in a way that right now we don't fully understand. And so that's why I think we should kind of err on. And, and that's what we've done in our cases is try to err on the uh, side of being cautious with it. And, you know, the last thing that we want to see is trials that occur over Zoom. Mm -hmm. We think that that is a very real threat to due process because we don't think that 
you can get a fair trial. Um, even though there are certain things that are better that you could have witnesses without masks on mm-hmm. and without plexiglass, but you know, the, the courtroom has changed completely. And I think that it's a little unsettling, uh, when you see all the plexiglass up, you see, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people wearing face shields or masks. It's just uh, a situation that is obviously not ideal. Um, And I think courts are being cautious with the way that they do it, but caution should also not completely rule the day because, you know, we represent people who have a lot of, a lot on the line and a lot of risk. So they have a lot to lose if the courts get it wrong. And the problem is with some of the appeals that we handle is you can't really, uh, quantify exactly how it affects you. You know, your gut feeling is that you know that it affects the outcome or what occurs or the way mm-hmm. people are looking at a witness, but you can't really put your finger on it. So that's why we really fight hard to try to make sure that things are as normal as possible while still being safe. But right. within the protocols, there are things that can be done to protect kind of both sides of it, the due process and also the health of everyone that's involved. Right. And, you know, you kind of provided the perfect transition when you were talking about the magic of being able to assess credibility, because I think that for our clients and for defendants everywhere, there's also a magic of the jury being able to see their face and their reaction to things. I think it's really easy when you're wearing a mask to make your eyes look like something that the rest of your face doesn't look like. And I think it's important for clients to be able to have the jury assess them as a whole as the trial's going on. That being said, I want to shift now into the impact that this has had on defendants and on our clients. And one of the the big things that I know concerns a lot of practitioners is there's so many people just sitting waiting for trial while they're in custody. Yeah, absolutely. So that's been... One of the things that particularly in Milwaukee County has been dealing with is that there was uh, such a lengthy interruption while um, and and it was justified because of the fact that um, it's the biggest county in the state. There's a lot of moving parts and everyone wants to make sure that we're doing things in the right way. You have other counties where there's fewer individuals uh, where they've been able to get to at least some semblance of normalcy. But um, there's really concern about how long people are staying in custody. And really, I think it just underscores the need to have some level of bail reform in our state, because right now there are people who are sitting for a very long period of time uh, because of COVID and other reasons who maybe even are sitting on what a lot of people would think is a low amount of cash bail. and. One of the difficulties in the way that our state handles things is that there's not really a consideration of somebody's uh, wealth or income or assets that they have when setting bail. And that's not really the alternative. I think the alternative should be that um, it should remain not really much of a consideration, but that more people should be released on signature bonds or lower amount of cash bail, particularly now, because Um, there are a lot of ways to ensure that someone shows up to court. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it truly is a punishment making someone sit, uh, especially in the middle of a pandemic where um, there is a lot of concern about the protocols uh, that are in the jails and things like that. And I think that you're much 
more likely to get COVID in an environment where you're in custody than where you're out. Yeah, and we've we've seen that play out too, not just in Milwaukee and the House of Corrections, but all over the state. I mean, Brown County a couple months ago got hit really, really hard in their jail, and I think that that's affected the way that they go about business and deciding who is even punished by going to jail. Right, yeah. So that has been, uh, you know, while it's affected things pre-trial, after a case is resolved, there's actually been um, a much more willingness to put people on electronic monitoring and things like that because they just don't want all of these extra, you know, bodies, people moving back and forth because that creates a lot of possibility of transmitting the disease. And so that has been a benefit. And so one of the things that we've had to get to know and understand better is how are, how's each county handling, um, the way that they handle Huber Mm -hmm. privileges. So, uh, Huber privileges where you can be released for, um, for work or school or other, uh, things where you would normally come back to the jail every night, Mm -hmm. six days a week. Um, but now a lot of counties are allowing you to, um, be on an ankle monitor, uh, which is a much mm-hmm. better form of being in custody, obviously. Right. And I think in a silver lining to the pandemic, I think this has really opened up a dialogue about what prisons are for, what sort of offenders need to actually go to prison. And I, I'm hopeful that some sort of prison reform comes out of this. Yeah, I think that that's actually been one of the um, surprising aspects of this is that we heard a lot of talk about uh, lowering the prison population. But if you look at the statistics, the prison population has basically remained very, very close to where it was. Um, We have a very high rate of mass incarceration in this state, and that's something that puts an extreme burden on Uh, the taxpayers and the system in general Mm -hmm. Uh, and the prison is well over capacity Um, and so this pandemic has really highlighted a lot of the difficulties in maintaining a system of mass incarceration but at the Mm -hmm. same time it's ill-equipped right now uh, in releasing people so there are certain things that we can try to do to get people released from uh, the prison system Mm -hmm. early but the hoops that you have to jump through are a lot and you have to have a really good reason because now you have a situation where a lot of the prison population has already had COVID um, and they're moving towards vaccinating people, but it still doesn't change that, you know, the calculus should change. Why are we sending so many people to prison? What is the benefit? What is the lowest amount of time that we can send someone to prison Mm -hmm. to have the effects of that sentence? Uh, mean something, but at the same time, not overburden the system. And our state could go far in having some amount of prison reform. But I think right now it's difficult to even address Mm -hmm. the business aspects and all the other things. We have such dysfunction uh, in our state capital that Mm -hmm. there's probably not going to be much that's done because they can't even uh, address the needs of businesses and people who are not in custody. So. It's something that definitely has to be looked at um, and, you know, is long overdue. I think something, too, that a lot of people who are not intricately involved in the legal system 
what they don't see is the fact that a lot of individuals who are sentenced to prison, before they can go to a facility, they have to get processed at a local jail, which means with COVID, they're sitting for months waiting to be processed, to be cleared by testing, all of that. And that in turn takes up beds in the local jail, which makes that more crowded and makes it an even bigger hotbed for COVID to spread in local jails. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, amount of time that people sit in jail prior to going into the prison system after a sentence has lengthened significantly. Mm -hmm. So prior to COVID, it would be likely a week and you would be on a bus to Dodge, uh, which is the first facility that you go to, mm -hmm. uh, where they process you and figure out where you're going to go in the system. But now we've been seeing upwards of three, four or five months, people waiting in jail, uh, just to get transferred to and into the prison system. So mm -hmm. it's really at a breaking point. Uh, it probably was at a breaking point prior to COVID because we just keep sending people there and we don't have enough beds for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's really exacerbated the problem. And the trickle down effect is basically you have uh, too many people uh, who are supposed to be in prison and not enough room for them. And then on top of it, all of the protocols that have to take place and the lack of movement uh, makes it even worse. So it's it's a bad situation right now. Uh, and it's one that obviously we bring up in our cases because we do think that if the legislature is not going to deal with the problem, well, maybe the judges and the judiciary system can take a better look at, does this person really belong in prison? Because that question is much more complicated when you really delve into and you look at someone's life and how they got to that point in their life. Um, and it makes it, I think, something that courts should take a much better role and, and the lead on because that's the gateway to prison is through the judicial system. It's time for the definition of the day. Since this is the first episode of Zealous that's coming out, I thought it would be appropriate to uh, start with the definition of initial appearance. And Jason, because you do so much criminal defense work, there's no better person to walk everyone through what it is. Sure. So an initial appearance is basically the first appearance, obviously. I mean, mm -hmm. it's basically the, by definition what it is. Yeah. But you can think of it as the first formal appearance in front of uh, either a judge or a court commissioner where they present the criminal complaint and file it in court. So that's what basically starts your case off. Mm -hmm. um, an initial appearance could occur uh, very quickly after you're arrested uh, or it could take a while. So let's say there's an investigation prior to the initial appearance, mm -hmm. uh, but that's the first time you're in court. So what happens there? In a uh, misdemeanor case, you enter a plea there. So you would enter a plea of not guilty to the counts and they would set bail. So at that time they would set, do you have to post any cash to be released uh, pending your case being resolved? Or do you have other sort of conditions and things like that that you need to follow? Um, in a felony case, the only difference is you don't enter a plea on that day because you have a preliminary hearing. Uh, and what comes next after uh, uh, a felony case, you get a preliminary hearing. 
Uh, and then in a misdemeanor case, uh, the case will likely be set for a date in front of the judge where they ask what the status of the case is or a pretrial where they trying to negotiate, you know, what are we going to do with this case? Let's get to know Jason Luzak outside of the legal world. So uh, a little known fact about Jason Luzak and probably one of my favorite facts about him is that he is an avid guitar player. <laughs> yes, maybe not a great guitar player, but it's a great uh, stress reliever. Yeah. So. How long have you been playing, Jason? Um, well, I got my first guitar when I, I convinced my parents when I was like 13 to get me guitar. Um, they put me in lessons. Um, so I, I, I had a guitar basically throughout my life. I went a period of time where I didn't, but then quickly, uh, I just continued to buy guitars. So it irritates my wife cause I have a lot of <laughs> guitars now. Um, and I'm always, you know, playing around with them, but it, it's something that's just, it's a good kind of mindless activity that I can do to kind of relieve some stress of, you know, practicing law and yeah. dealing with, you know, pretty serious issues. So. Yeah. And I, I covered this when I introduced you, but of all the people at our firm, you probably deal with some of the most stressful or client stressful situations where their lives are on the line. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, you know, I view it as uh, obviously just part of the job and part of the practice. And I, I, I try to, and I think one of the things that um, is a benefit, but also somewhat of a drawback is I very much uh, empathize with our clients yeah. and I try to put myself in their shoes uh, and try to help them, you know, and counsel them through a situation. So not only providing them with the the legal uh, side of things, but also the human side of things and trying to help them through a really difficult situation, which most of the people I've stopped asking people, you know, how are you doing? Yeah. Because usually when they're talking to me, they're not doing very well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we like to pride ourselves in, you know, taking care of the whole person and not just their legal issue. Right. And you've got to take care of the whole person too for yourself. And I think that's where guitar really comes in for you. When you're playing, what is your favorite type of music to play? Um, Do you have any inspirations out there? Well, I mean, I have certain guitar players that are, I, you know, obviously I love, like mm -hmm. Jimi Hendrix. Um, I actually think John Mayer is a very great guitar player. Agreed. Um, also Gary Clark Jr. So I love blues music. Mm -hmm. I love um, that type of music. I mean, I grew up listening to that music. Um so, yeah, I mean, th those are my inspirations, but obviously I'm not, you know, uh, <laughs> ripping it like Jimi Hendrix. So. You're not going to be on the Grammy stage anytime no, soon? No, no, And that's why I honestly, I just play for myself, you know, and that's, yeah. uh, that's what I kind of realized um, in, in having that hobby is that, you know, you can have a hobby just for yourself and you can enjoy doing it and, you know. It's, it's just, it's fun. So it's a, it's a fun thing. And I'm also trying to get, um, you know, my kids to be involved in it as well. So yeah, that would be a fun family activity. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for taking the time to sit down. I know you have a busy day per usual. Um, and I'm sure that the listeners really appreciate it too. Yeah. Thank you.
Thank you, everyone, for joining us for the first ever podcast of Zealous. This series is brought to you by Gimbel, Riley, Guerin, and Brown, located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you think you need a lawyer, contact us at grgblaw.com. Tune in for our next episode, where we talk pre-trial investigations with partner Chris Strobane.